0: If you'd open your Bibles with me to Galatians, chapter 5, we'll come back to our central text in Colossians in a few moments. And this week, next, God willing, possibly a third week, we'll take up this topic that's before us on forgiving one another. Uh, Hopefully after that we'll do uh, at least one more on worshiping with one another. Uh, maybe one, one more clean up sermon, and then I'd like to be moving into the book of Daniel. At least I hope to be, so we'll see, see where that goes. Galatians chapter 5. I'm, uh, struck by this and the way that it's framed for us. A familiar passage to all of us, picking up in verse 16, uh, Paul's Counsel to us here by the Holy Spirit that, as he says there is, uh, if we walk by the Spirit, we will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For each of these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. Each one is striving for the mastery. But if you're led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. self-control and against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. This antithesis that he gives us here is one that he repeats in other places in the New Testament. It begins with The one idea, if you walk in the Spirit, if you are Christ's, if the case is that you're raised with Him, then there should be some accordant realities. If we were to read this passage again, and this list given to us in 19 through 21, I doubt seriously that any of us would disagree with the conclusion that he gives us in verse 21. Those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. We, we wouldn't argue with that. We wouldn't think twice to say those who walk in sexual immorality and those who walk in impurity and those who walk in sensuality or idolatry or those steeped in the occult we wouldn't blink twice, especially as a, as a congregation, as, as professed believers, as probably most of us are here today, that should people who are practicing those sins remain in those sins and not repent of them and flee to Christ for mercy and His imputed righteousness, they will not inherit heaven. Matter of fact, if you're not a Christian this morning, if that categorizes you, you need to hear these words and the seriousness of them. Salvation was never meant for us to remain in our sin, but that we might be delivered from it. Nor do I imagine many of us, if any, would argue that the same is true for those whose lives are characterized by some of the other things here that he mentions. Drunkenness and orgies and things like these. We, we're pretty quick to be able to say those who, who live in these things are not going to inherit the kingdom of heaven. But when we give some thought to the other kinds of sins that are raised here, we may not be quite so sure that they're as serious and impactful on our eternal state, look at some of the others that he raises. Picking up in verse 20, after idolatry and sorcery, without breaking, in the same sentence, he picks up the concept of enmity. Enmity is simple it's being enemies of others. Are you someone's enemy? If you remain in that state, you will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. That's what the text says. How about strife? One lexicon defines that as conflict arising from discord, constantly criticizing others. Jealousy, which is resentment against others over possessions or position. Fits of anger. Those are outbursts of rage where where you can't control your temper. That's your response to people. Rivalries. In essence, that's wanting to look bigger and better than you really are in others' eyes. Wanting them to have uh, a sense that you are more preeminent. Dissensions. That's to foment anger towards others or dislike of others, to encourage some to dislike other people. Divisions, which is always categorizing people into groups, putting them into groups so that you can marginalize them. It's the essence of bigotry. And envy, ill will towards someone who has a perceived advantage over you. But in fact, there's no difference between the lists in this regard. None. It's one continual thought. Those who live lives characterized by the things in this passage he ends will not inherit the kingdom of God. It's in that light then that I ask us to reconsider the seriousness of what we had read for us in Matthew chapter 6. Jesus' closing words after teaching us how to pray. And He finishes the section with these words. Let me read 14 and 15 to you again. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. And I ask the question, do we take Him seriously? Does He mean that? And if He does, what does that mean for us? How are we living in that regard? Just before Jerry Bridges came for our conference he sent me a copy of one of his more recent books i highly recommend it to you the title is respectable sins confronting the sins we tolerate let me read a little bit to you it's a little long but bear with me we see that the entire concept of sin has virtually disappeared from our american culture at large and has been softened even within many of our churches to accommodate modern sensibilities. Indeed, strong biblical words for sin have been excised from our vocabulary. People no longer commit adultery. Instead, they have an affair. Corporate executives do not steal. They commit fraud. But what about our conservative evangelical churches? Has the idea of sin all but disappeared from us also? No, it has not disappeared, but it has in many instances been deflected to those outside our circles who commit flagrant sins, such as abortion, homosexuality, and murder, or the notorious white-collar crimes of high-level corporate executives. It's easy for us to condemn those obvious sins while virtually ignoring our own sins of gossip, pride, envy, bitterness, and lust. Or even our lack of those gracious qualities that Paul calls the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5. A pastor invited the men in his church to join him in a prayer meeting. Rather than praying about the spiritual needs of the church as he expected, all of the men, without exception, prayed about the sins of the culture, primarily abortion and homosexuality. Finally, the pastor, dismayed over the apparent self-righteousness of the men, closed the prayer meeting with the well-known prayer of the tax collector, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. The attitude towards sin reflected in the prayers of those men seems all too prevalent within our conservative evangelical circles. Of course, this is a broad-brush observation, and there are many happy exceptions. But on the whole, we appear to be more concerned about the sins of society than we are the sins of the saints. In fact, we often indulge in what I call respectable or acceptable sins without any sense of sin Our gossip or unkind words about a brother or sister in Christ, they roll easily off our tongues without any awareness of wrongdoing. We harbor hurts over wrongs long past without any effort to forgive as God has forgiven us. We look down our religious noses at sinners in society without any sense of the humble. There but for the grace of God go I, Spirit. We are incensed, and rightfully so, when we see a major denomination ordain a practicing homosexual as a bishop. Why do we not also mourn over our selfishness, our critical spirit, our impatience, and our anger? It's easy to let ourselves off the hook by saying, these sins are not as bad as the flagrant ones of society. But God hasn't given us the authority to establish different values for those sins. Instead, he says through James, whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. Among the respectable sins that he devotes chapters to are the sins of ungodliness. Anxiety and frustration. Discontentment. Unthankfulness. Pride. Selfishness. Lack of self-control. Impatience and irritability. Judgmentalism. And two chapters on anger anger is going to be a key element as we work through this whole concept of forgiveness for while it's possible for us as individuals to have an issue or problem with anger in our lives that is not directed is not connected directly to unwillingness to forgive the truth is that forgiveness unforgiveness is always connected in some way with anger and an unwillingness to stop being angry. It's with that in mind that I want us to look at our text in Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3. And to see how it is that the Apostle, under the inspiration of the Spirit, approaches this issue of unforgiveness... And as I said, today's going to be mainly introduction, although we'll get into the first point and try to unpack the other two next week. He approaches the issue first and foremost, and that's the way we are here this morning as a body of believers, in the context of an appeal to Christians as Christians. That's his, that's his direction. Look at the opening words of chapter 1. Here's the query. If then you have been raised with Christ. Now that's a question for some of you here to answer in a more direct way. Have you, do you know that you have been raised with Christ? Are you born again? Have you fled to Christ for mercy? Do you know your sins forgiven? Have you seen Him as your Lord and Savior? Have you cast off your sin and, and struggle with it, or, or, have you just gained some religious aspect to your life? Now, this is couched in the question, and the one that I believe most of us here certainly can can own rightly. If then you have been raised in Christ, two things. First, then seek the things that are above. Christ is seated at the right hand of God. What a call. And if you have been raised in Christ, secondly, verse 2, then set your minds on things that are above and not on things that are on earth. Why? Why? Verse 3, for you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. This world isn't all there is. This is not, life isn't just us. And so in verse 3, we get the first of the wise, because you've died with Christ, and your life is hidden with Him in God. And secondly, in verse 4, because when Christ who is your life appears, then you will also appear with Him in glory. So let me go back and tease that out. Seek the things which are heavenly in orientation as opposed to what's earthly or worldly. Set your minds on this pursuit. Seek to think, to act, and to feel and to respond as one who's been raised up with Christ into the heavenlies. Like a person with dual citizenship who says, yes, I'm here, but but my real loyalties are somewhere else. And I, I live like that's the reality for me because being in Christ now and having believed the gospel and being joined to Him by the Holy Spirit and being a partaker of His death and burial and resurrection, the whole of life is in motion toward being with Him when He finally appears. So, if you're raised in Him, think this way, work this way. This first four verses is introduction to the idea. He then Helps us understand what that looks like in practical terms. The theory sounds good. It's easy to say, okay, this is this is the way I'm supposed to be, seeking the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God, and setting my minds on uh, my mind on the things that are above, and not on the things of the earth. Because my life is hidden in him, and, and when he appears, then I will appear with him in glory. But what does that mean? How do we put teeth into that how do we put flesh on that what does that look like in life with one another and now he's going to drive toward verse 13 the weight of everything he's going to say is going to rest in his conclusion in verse 13 but which is moving us toward living a life of forgiveness but he unpacks that in two ways first He tells us what this means negatively in verses 5 through 11. What does it mean if I've been raised with Christ to seek the things that are above where Christ is? And to set our minds on the things that are above and not on the earth. To live as those who have died with Christ and whose lives are hidden in Him and in anticipation of Him when He appears who is our life. What's that look like? Well, first in verse 5, he mentions the first negative, which is, well, then put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. So there needs to be a, a an approach to this that is negative. To put to death that which is oriented toward and belongs to life in this world, as considered apart from Christ. It's not how we're to live. It's not living by the values and the worldview of this present age, or this present culture, or any other age or culture. It's a departure from the way the world ordinarily functions. It's a call to act and to think very differently, and and for different reasons from those around us. From those who are not seeking, who are not setting their goals on heavenly things, spiritual things, where Christ is. And this he spells out in unambiguous terms. The things, the kinds of things that the Holy Spirit has in mind when he says that we're to put these off, or that we're to put to death what is earthly in us, he, be, he begins to enumerate the first is sexual immorality. This is incompatible. This doesn't fit with one who's walking with Christ, who's seeking things that are above. And, and it's not hard to define that. Sexual immorality is any kind of sex outside of biblical, committed, monogamous, married, heterosexuality. It's it's what it is. Any sex outside of that context is sinful. Or impurity has to do with moral impurity in our thinking, how we think about women, how we think about men, how we think about sexuality in the world. We're to put to death passion, lustful passion. It has a a sexual aspect to it here, but more the driving physical desire is is at the, the center of. We're not to be mastered by such things and and to be putting them to death. And evil desire is his next one. To covet, to strongly desire what another has. Say, "I, I want that for me. Whether it's possessions or position or any area of life. And lastly, covetousness, which is idolatry. Pure and simple, that's greediness for possession. And then he says, why? Verse 6, You see, after all, on account of these, the wrath of God is coming. So let me go back and reframe the argument so far. If we are Christ's then, why wouldn't we want to distance ourselves from the very things which He died to cleanse us from and free us from and what He's going to return To judge. That's that's what's before us. He continues his thought. Verse 7. In these two you once walked. When you were living in them. There was a time before our salvation. That we all walked in these things too. But these are to be our past. Not our present. But now that we are Christ's. We must do away with them. That's verse eight. But now you must put them all away. There's the emphasis both on must and on all because he's going to increase the list. And like I said earlier, we're all comfortable with the first list. We're, we can condemn that easily. We we know that that no one should be walking in sexual immorality or impurity or passion or evil desire or covetousness. But but we don't stop there. With the the things that he's mentioned in verse 5 we need to get rid of some of the other things too. The other things belong to the same category things Jesus died to cleanse us from and that he's going to return to judge. And then he starts enumerating those. What are they? Well, we're also to put off anger. Are you an angry person? One who becomes furious easily. Wrath. That's rage that seeks some measure of punishment. I'm going to mete out the punishment. I'm going to make sure they have the right penalty. Malice. It's a strong dislike even to the point of wanting to see harm come to the individual slander, harming another's reputation, obscene talk, vulgar, dirty speech. It's become all the rage in the emergent church in our day and creeps in behind the scenes. Ultimately, he wraps at least the majority of that up in the concept of lying don't lie to one another, seeing that you've put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of its creator. Don't don't claim to be Christ's and not challenge these. Don't lie. And all of this, once again, as he comes to verse 9, because we're not who we used to be. We've put off the old self. Verse 10. And that's being renewed. We're being renewed in the knowledge after the image of the Creator. We've taken on a new identity. That of Christians. Those who have seen the sinfulness of sin. Those who have seen Christ dying for our sins and are in the process of being restored to look like Him once again. To bear the image of His character, of, of God's character. And there isn't one of us here, saved or unsaved, who would imagine that God's character is capable of doing any of the things we just enumerated. He expands that in verse eleven. You see, here there is not Greek or Jew or circumcised and uncircumcised or barbarian or Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all in all. As Christ, we we shake off those old identities. Our old defining associations cease to be relevant the way they were in the world. It's, it's not about being Greek or Jew in this context of being a pagan versus being religious. It isn't about being circumcised or uncircumcised. Those are earthly cultures that, that have no impact on us in where we are now in Christ. It has nothing to do with being, and he uses these three phrases. First, being a barbarian. For the Greek mind, the barbarian was the guy who was low class. He wasn't cultured. But then it gets worse. Or the Scythian. The Scythian was even lower class. It's one thing to to be low class. It's another to be completely from the other side of the tracks. Or a slave, which in their thought was to be no class. It was to be a non-entity. We're free. Now all those are earthly distinctions and they're earthly identities and they are useless in Christ. Our new identity is Christian. Christian. That's who we are. And that consumes everything. That's, that's the phrase. That's the way he brings it out. But Christ who is all and in all. That's who we are and how we're to live as Christ's Striking words. If he had left us with the negative, I I fear we'd fall into despair, but he doesn't do that. He brings us nextly to the positive in in verse twelve. And it's in this portion of putting on then, which is how he starts verse twelve, that we're brought to this. Subject of forgiveness. This is the weight of what we're after in all of this this morning, and it's in this appeal to forgiveness which seems to be the chief point that he's pursuing in this section that he gives us a threefold argument toward it. I just want to deal with the first one today because it's the, the it's the overarching one to the, the theme of this section of one through seventeen, and it's couched here. It is a call to forgiveness as central to being one of God's elect. It is a call to forgiveness as central to conceiving ourselves, understanding ourselves as one of God's elect. You see, just as verse 1 began reminding of us of our being raised with Christ, so that's what's happened to us. And even more, we're to, we're to take that in as, as who we are and look at the way that he uses the language here. It is profound. Put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, the following things. Don't miss those three phrases. They're amazingly important. God's chosen ones. Child of God, if you're a Christian here today and you recognize that you are a chosen one, elect of God from all eternity, what does that mean for how we ought to live? And if He denominates us holy, what does that mean? And beloved. I ask myself, as I work through this, have I, are there times when I lose sight of the glorious nature of my salvation to such a degree that inconsequential things in life eclipse the glory of knowing that we're chosen and holy and beloved when those ought to be the things that frame Everything for us. These are high things, these three statements. They're not plucked out of the air lightly. They're given by the Holy Spirit because of the direct connection that they make with the believer and with Christ. You remember in Luke 9.35 that those around heard the voice. And the voice said, this is My Son, My Chosen One, listen to Him. He's the chosen one, and we're in Him. And then in Mark 1, when the demoniac approached Him and cried out, I know who you are, you're the Holy One of God. Then Paul says, holy people. Then in Matthew 3.17 and 17.5, again, these terms uniquely applied, applied to Christ. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And he says to you, us as Christians, as in Christ, chosen by God, as made holy in Christ, as the beloved of God, This is an imitation. It's appropriation. It's growing into the fullness of what's been given to us in the greatness of this salvation that is so astounding that the mind can't take it in. If you're not a Christian here today, this is not about, oh, if I clean up my act, somehow I'll be received by God and somehow I'll be good enough. No, this is about having been received by God through grace I now live out the privilege of what He has redeemed me to be. And then He starts to tell us what that looks like in very clear terms. So put on then. Christian, hear me. Put on as as a chosen one. As a holy one. As a beloved one, compassion. Why compassion first? Because that's what the chosen one and the holy one and the beloved showed us. Seeing us in our sin, gave everything in heaven and put it aside and stripped himself of his dignity and had compassion on us what a great savior what a glorious redeemer that's what he calls us to not not compassion out of some sense of duty but compassion out of the glory of this salvation that we've received which is so compassionate from on high that's the call put on compassion because he is Poured it out on you. Compassion when we see others' sins as hurtful for them. If we don't want them to remain in an unforgiven state because we remember what it was like when we were unforgiven. And we don't want them to stay there. Especially brothers or sisters in Christ. As chosen ones, as holy ones, as beloved ones, put on compassionate hearts and put on kindness. Kindness isn't just not taking our pound of flesh. Launida says that it is to provide what is beneficial. Kindness isn't just disregarding somebody who's hurt us. It's blessing them. Because that's what Christ did. Because that's what our Redeemer's done for us. In his great glory, He has blessed us and given what is beneficial to, to those who didn't deserve it. As Chosen ones and his holy ones and his beloved ones put on humility. Look at another's sin and say, and I'm a sinner too. I'm a sinner too. Your sin gives me no superiority. His chosen ones and his holy ones and as beloved ones put on meekness and as one commentator puts it meekness this word is mildness in interaction speaking softly oh how tenderly he speaks to us in our sin can't help but remember the woman brought to him in adultery can you stooping and writing on the ground so he wouldn't see her nakedness. Calling on the others, well, if you've got no sin, go ahead, throw the first one. Probably he who has not this sin, throw the first stone. And them all leaving, and him still stooping, and then looking around saying, is there no one left? She says no, and he says, "Then, and I don't condemn you either. Go and sin no more." As holy ones, as chosen ones, as beloved ones, he says, "Put on patience." Once again, let me appeal to Launida, because their their definition of this word, which is my. Favorite of the Greek words simply because I love the way it feels when you say it, macrothumia. But they say this is the definition it's a state of emotional calm in the face of provocation or misfortune and without complaint or irritation. Not because we're good, but because our salvation is so great. Because our Savior is so wonderful in how He's dealt with us. Too long we've looked at things like these and we've thought of them as options and not the necessary manifestations of true grace in the regenerated heart. And it isn't so. Not if we take Matthew 6 seriously. Not if we take Galatians 5 seriously. And then he goes on, he brings this all to a head as he brings it together in bearing with one another, enduring difficulty over time, and the point being to be like Christ. And if any has a complaint, forgiving one another. Theologians refer to this, a word like complaint here. In particular terms, it's called a hapax legomena. It just means it's the only place in the whole Bible where it appears. He singles out a unique phrase. The Holy Spirit does. The idea here is that the complaint is legitimate. It's not that the complaint isn't legitimate. It's the cost of forgiveness. In the process of being made like Christ, whose image we're being made into. See, forgiveness takes on this level of importance here because it's in the forgiveness of sins that Christ is most revealed. It's the cross. It's in the forgiveness of sins that we're most like Him. When we forgive, that we most. Show Him to one another and to the world. As God's elect, as God's holy ones, as God's beloved ones, we're to forgive. It's central to bearing the image of and living out the life of Christ. Christ. And it's in this light then that we see the importance of Jesus' words. Back in the Sermon on the Mount, let me call you back to them for just a moment. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive yours. And so I'm going to ask you the simple question, who do you need to forgive? Who do you need to live Christ to today? Out of the greatness, out of the abundance, out of the unimaginable glory of the salvation that has raised you up to be with Christ and to put off the things of the flesh and to put on as God's chosen ones and holy ones and beloved, who then do we need to forgive? It's central to being Christ's in this world. Look at the way he continues to work through the phrases. This is, this is the putting on of love that verse 14 talks about, which is what holds everything together in harmony. You see, you can have no harmony without forgiveness. You can't. It's the demonstration of a, it's, it's the letting the peace of God rule on our hearts, even as we're called to be parts of this one body. In verse 15, you can't have unity without forgiveness. It's the demonstration of a thankful heart as opposed to one living out some sense of being cheated all the time. You can't be thankful without forgiveness and in 16 it's letting God's word dwell in us richly instead of just having hints of it here and there so that we can teach and admonish one another wisely and in things like singing of psalms and and hymns and and praises and spiritual songs with thankfulness in our hearts instead of rancor toward one another it is speaking our words and doing our deeds Truly in the name of our Lord Jesus. To to deal with one another and say, This is how my Savior would have responded to you in this circumstance. I can put His name on it. Because that's how He's responded to each of us. Over and over and over and over. Forgive as as God's chosen ones. Forgive as God's holy ones. Forgive as God's beloved ones. election is especially marked out here because it's the very summit of what it means to have been the recipient of undeserved sovereign grace. And that's what we're called to do in forgiveness. To display that same thing it's the greatness of our salvation that's to elicit great forgiveness toward others. And I've got to mention that this spot deserving forgiveness is not even in the equation at this point. It's not even mentioned in the portion. It's manifesting grace on the undeserving. Because that's what we've received. Forgiveness begins in the putting off of the old, of the anger and the wrath and the malice of the slander and the obscene talk and the dishonesty and, and to live out a life characterized by compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, bearing with one another and if any has a complaint, forgiving one another. And this we do especially because we are God's chosen ones, God's holy ones, God's beloved ones. So I'm going to ask you again. Who is it today that you need to forgive? Who is it that you need to forgive? What is it that God is still holding against you? And out of that reality, imagine what it is you're holding against someone else. In a closing word, I I have no doubt that someone is going to say, okay, this is all good and well, but what if the offending party doesn't repent? What then? And that's a good question and a right question. I'm going to hope to unpack it in much more detail next week. But let me just give you something in short to contemplate until we come back together to talk about that. Though it's true that there are some men who cannot enjoy the freedom your forgiveness brings until they repent of real sins. And we'll discuss that. There are real sins and then just offenses. There's a big difference between them. But as your Savior does, you are to be ready to forgive the moment they do repent. Now that's an easy thing to give lip service to. Every one of us can pretty well assure ourselves, well, if they come and grovel, sure, I'll forgive them. We can do that pretty easily. Especially if we don't think the offending party's ever going to come and ask for forgiveness. For some of us, it's a relief. We, we like the fact that we don't think they'll ever own it because then we'll never actually be called upon to reconcile with them. That'll make it easy. But the question is, how do I know I'm truly ready to forgive? And again, next week we'll deal with some other aspects of this in more detail. But how do I know that my heart is ready out of of the deep, rich, overflowing reality and glory of what I know my salvation is in Christ and his, his immeasurable, incomparable, incalculable mercy and grace toward me. It's out of that that we're called to forgive. Not out of self. But how do we know when the heart's in the right place? I think we have... An incredible example given to us in the portion we had read in Acts chapter 7 with Stephen. Stephen, as you know, was one of those who was chosen to minister to the the church in Jerusalem, one of the seven that was picked. And he was a man filled with the Holy Spirit and with great gifts, and this occasion of his preaching ended in his death. You see the rage in verse 54 of that chapter. Now when they, when they heard these things, they were enraged, and they ground their teeth at him. But he, being full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven. If you're setting your minds on uh, the things above where Christ is, what he was doing? They're stoning me, but I need to see him. You see, he's on the throne, and he's the one who died for me. I'm going to fix my my gaze there, and he saw Jesus. He saw the glory of God, and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. He couldn't help but. Blurted out to the group, behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. They cast him out of the city and they stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at his feet, at, at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he cried out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And then, falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, "Lord, do not hold this sin against." When he had said this, he fell asleep. He he'd heard that before, or if he hadn't heard it, he had at least heard it witnessed to him by those who saw Jesus die. He knew that. This is how you know when you're ready to forgive. When you start pleading for the one who sinned against you and say, Lord, do not charge anything to their account because of me. There's nothing I want you to punish them for. Not me. Take me off the books. They don't owe me anything. Don't punish them because of what they've done to me. Would you plead with the Father that way? You're ready to forgive. And until, and until you're still holding it against them, And the answer, child of God, is simply to go back and get a greater vision of His glory, of His mercy, of His grace, of this this salvation that is so far beyond comprehension that you have not only been forgiven all your sin, but He promises to cleanse you every step of the way and to bring you at last into His presence in perfectness. Given that, Who can't we forgive? Heavenly Father, I thank You for the clarity of Your Word. I freely admit that some of the words we covered this morning are frightening because it is easy for us to categorize certain aspects and certain sins as though they are not grave, to imagine that we can continue in them and somehow still have eternal life when Christ died to cleanse us of them and free us of them and will return again to judge them. There may be some here this morning, Father, who don't know Christ at all they don't even yet know the the depths of their sin against you and their need of forgiveness and that it can only be had by faith in Christ that there is no ceremony they can do but to cast themselves on your mercy and you are the one who promises that you'll receive them if they come that you'll forgive and for everyone who's a Christian here today Father it's It's the knowledge that that's what you did with us. Christ is done with us. And oh, we want the glory of that salvation to so fill us that we, that it makes it almost impossible to go back to those other things or at least not to stay there or to countenance them one longer, one moment longer than, than when it's revealed to us. To set it aside to put on Christ, to put on compassion, kindness, gentleness, and meekness, and humility, to bear and to forgive. Oh, that we might be demonstrations of your forgiveness in the lavishness of our own. Father, work in us for the glory of Christ, we pray. Amen.